Well, greetings to you today from New York Presbytery as Todd, Mark, and I, and Betty was there, and Susan had the privilege to, uh, to be there at Presbytery, and so we bring greetings back from all the churches. It's always good to uh, see our, our fellow pastors and elders there at uh, Presbytery, and though it was way up in Rochester, <laughs> um, nonetheless, it was good to be with them. And yes, praise the Lord for Justin, uh, who was ordained uh, yesterday, or who was approved for ordination, and he will officially be installed and receive that ordination um, November 5th. So uh, you all, of course, will be uh, invited to that service as well. It'll be, I believe, at 4 o'clock at Westminster. We'll announce it as we get there. Um, anyway, so we're excited for, for Justin. It's, I can tell you it's a, uh, it's a long and grueling process, you know. And uh, we do this to our Presbyterian pastors, you know. We really put them through the ringer. Um, and and I, I got to watch, you know. I got to watch with a, a little bit of glee because it's good to see Justin go through the ringer. And, uh, uh, know, you know, knowing that I had been there before him and <laughs> had to endure. And uh, I remind him, however, I had to do it when it was the Northeast Presbytery. You know, it was the big, you know, Metro was involved in there. And uh, it, was, it was tough. But Justin endured. And that's what it calls for endurance. And he did, praise God. Well, today we continue our look through our, our jaunt through uh, uh, Daniel, and today we come to Daniel 3, as has already been read to you, uh, that familiar story. If anybody knows a story in the, in the Old Testament, certainly this is uh, on the Mount Rushmore of stories that they know, uh, the, the, the few that anybody might know, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, and the story of the fiery furnace. And so we come to this familiar story, one that, again, I think I could probably uh, ask, uh, though don't worry, I won't do it, but I could probably ask almost any of you to uh, preach today, and uh, I think we could muddle our way through, uh, or do Sunday school, um, to, to see the courage, uh, the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the faithfulness of God uh, to deliver. But as we come to this familiar text, uh, it's the third in our look at Daniel, and I think it's worth just stepping back a second and seeing uh, what's happening here, because we have thought that as we go through the story of Daniel, we're not merely doing a historical study, uh, we're doing, if you will, a Christian living study. What does it mean for us to live in exile? Because that's what we're doing. We can identify with Daniel, we can identify with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because we, if you will, are, you know, we're, we're not home. Uh, we are living in exile. We are living in Babylon. I, th I really encourage you to take up this image of Babylonian living, exilic living, and make it the dominant defining uh, metaphor and image in your head. Um, if you thought of yourself as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you thought of yourself in this situation, it would really you would see the world differently. Um, America is our home in one sense, but it's our home just like Babylon was Daniel's home. And so therefore, it's, we, can, we can really glean from Daniel's story for our own living and ask some difficult questions and, uh, and, and receive some very good example of, of, of challenges for how we ought to live. Now, in, in chapter 1, what we learned was that living in exile requires wisdom. It requires, as I call it, improvisation. There's no rule book for how you do this. You know, now the Bible, no, no question about it, gives you some. The, the Bible does give you some firm thou shalts and thou shalt nots. Okay, those are, that's the easy stuff, okay? Do the thou shalts and don't do the thou shalt nots, and, and that's a good thing. But really, if you look at your day, 
if you, if you just take any given day, 99.999% of the things really don't have anything to do with the thou shalt's and the thou shalt nots. Rarely are we confronted with one of those. And when we do, we kind of get it. I shall not. The rest of the time calls for nuance and thought and wisdom and improvisation. Like, what's it mean to be a Christian in this moment? I can't look up a Bible verse and decide whether or not I should do this thing or not do that thing. Take this job or not take that job. Hire this person or not hire this person. Go to this college or don't go to that college. You know, um, watch this movie or not watch this movie. It really requires improvisation. It, re it really requires of us to so take in the Bible that when we find ourselves in challenging situations for which there is no clear thou shalt and thou shalt not, we are able to act consistently with what the Bible is driving us toward, the kind of man or woman that God wants us to be. And we saw that with Daniel in his improvisation in not eating the food offered to him from the king's table. I do not believe it would have been a sin for Daniel to eat that food, but Daniel opted in leading his buddies here in the same way not to have that food as an act of wisdom of saying, if I eat of this, I can see the effects this is going to have on me. This is going to settle me in to Babylon. I'm, I'm going to start to become a Babylonian if I eat this food. I'm going to start to enjoy the rich things of Babylon. And as such, I fear that I will lose my Jewish distinctive. And it won't take long before the God of Israel is, oh yes, remember when. You know, a real thing of nostalgia. Um, and so Daniel opted not to do it. And so sometimes it calls for wisdom. And that's one, that's one lesson we've learned thus far. Then in chapter 2, what we looked at last week, we see something else about a, a role that in many ways we are to fill within Babylon. And that is we give voice to the providence of God. We, we fill the role of a prophet. And we saw this with Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar gets a dream. And he can't interpret it. In fact, no one can interpret it. And only the gods can interpret this. And who has access to the gods, they say. Well, Daniel does. Daniel does. And, and Daniel comes and interprets. He's able to give words to the providential dream that Nebuchadnezzar gets. And I think we need to, again, live into this. It's, it is the prophetic role of the church of God. And again, if we had more time, we could even do this in Sunday school, if you like. Think about this in the book of Revelation, because in Revelation, you have the, the, uh, the works of God, judgments being poured out, and it's really the, the church of God that explains what those trumpets are, that is able to say, well, actually, that's the judgment of God. Can you see it? You know, the, the world can't see it. To the world, it just looks like natural disaster. To the world, it just looks like economic trouble. To the world, it just looks like... But the church gives voice to it. The, the, the church gives voice to the providential works of God. Now, I'm, I'm not saying we can explain exactly why this earthquake hit this area, or we can explain why you know, that hurricane hit that city. Uh, we, we don't do that. I can't, I can't micro-interpret the providence of God. But we can interpret the broad providential sweeps of God, and we can look at the calamities of this age and tell the world, repent. Repent. Do you not hear the trumpets of the Lord, the judgment of God in these things? When calamity strikes, does it not humble us? Like the church, like Daniel, needs to interpret what all the, the wise men of our age cannot interpret. 
That's what we saw in chapter two. And it's a, it's a challenge for us as well to be faithful, to put words to the providential work of God. Again, not in a micro way, trying to explain why this bad thing happened to that person. That, that's overstepping our bounds. But the fact that there is cancer, I, I, I can't tell you why Joanne has cancer and it would be wrong of me to do it. But what we can speak to is why there is cancer. You know, that, that I can do very confidently. It is a result of the fall. It is a result of man's rebellion against God and all cancer. When I hear anybody has cancer, when I hear about any economic calamity, or when I hear about any earthquake or hurricane, I can hear the word of the trumpet calling me to repent. And that's something only the church is going to tell the world. And Daniel interpreted the dream for Nebuchadnezzar that only the Lord could interpret, and Daniel, his servant, was able to do it. So there's another way we are to live in Babylon. Now today, we come to chapter 3, and what we learn here, and you're, again, you already know this story, is that sometimes living in Babylon calls for utter defiance. Not just utter defiance, costly defiance. And this is a hard sermon to preach because you know, I'm not in those shoes. I look at I look at Shadrach, Meshach. I was just thinking this on the drive here. You know, I look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I begin to quake in my shoes. What would I have done? What would I have done? It would have been so easy just to bow real quick. <laughs> and nobody would have cared. You know, nobody, nobody would have cared. And and you probably could have come up with a lot of justifications for it in the moment. You know, what good am I to the what good am I to Babylon for even for the glory of God if I die? You know, better I, you know, I think even the psalmist asked that. Can the dead praise you, Lord? You know, better I'm alive. At least then I could be a witness for you in the, you know, in the city of Babylon. Um, I would trust me, all those justifications would have come very quickly <laughs> to my head. So this is a hard this is a hard text for us to look at. Um, it's humbling, it reminds us of our own weaknesses. But let's jump in. And again, you know the story. Three things we need to reflect on today. First is the idolatry itself. Again, we live in Babylon, so we live in a land of idols. We are like Abraham, who we're just told lived in a land of idolaters. And that's what we live in. America is a wonderful nation. I'm so glad I live here and not in many other parts of the world. But we, like anyone else, live in a land of idolatry. And we have to come to grips with that. We cannot ever forget that we live in Babylon. And so if we live in a land of idolatry, again, we're going to find ourselves in moments of, of serious confrontation because one thing idols don't like to be is ignored. Idols don't like to be rejected or spurned. They like to be honored. And so here we have this idolatry. And again, this is the beauty of the Old Testament. In some ways, it's like a children's book. It sets things up. I'm not calling it cartoonish in a demeaning way. I'm using it as a metaphor, but it's almost like the Old Testament sets up these principles and these ideas in big cartoon figures for us. Like, you can't miss this. <laughs> you can't miss this idolatry. It's a 90-foot statue that's 9-foot wide and 9-foot thick, this massive statue that's placed down on the plains, okay? Th now, we all look at that and go, oh, yeah, wow, that's, that's idolatry. Like, you, you should not bow to that. You know, because then when you get here, when, you, when you, you flash back through time and you end up in America, there is no such statue. But there's a million statues. You know, a million subtler statues. But in the Old Testament, we get this really graphic, real historical, cartoonish in the sense like it's really over the top, 
uh, that Nebuchadnezzar does, glimpse of idolatry. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's a meathead. Yeah, he, just got a, he just got a vision of this amazing statue in which he is the head of gold, you know, and there's a head of Notice he does not make the statue that he just got in the vision. The statue in the vision was a head of gold, a chest of silver, you know, hips and thighs of bronze, and then legs of, of iron with feet of clay. But when, and then Nebuchadnezzar is told by Daniel, you are the head of gold, but you will be succeeded by another kingdom lesser than you the silver, and then, you know, the, the, the Persians, and then they'll be succeeded by the Greeks, and then they'll be succeeded by the Romans, and then a stone's going to come uncut by human hands and smash the statue, and it's all going to come down. Nebuchadnezzar, you'll remember, was kind of excited by this interpretation of the vision, because he heard all he heard. <laughs> when he heard, you're the head of gold, it was like, everything else was like the teacher in Charlie Brown, you know, wah, 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 wah. He, he, like, he couldn't hear any of that anymore. He... He said, now, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. Ooh, I'm the head of gold. That was all he could hear. Not your kingdom will be succeeded by another. It was just, oh, great, I'm the gold. So he runs out and commands, hey, guys, we're going to make a statue. And guess what? We're not going to do it that way. We're going to make it all gold. I don't want to hear any of this business about succession and any such thing. Just make me a big statue of gold like I saw in my dreams. Uh, except now I've, I've been told I'm the head of gold. So let's just make it all of gold. And then I want everyone to acknowledge this and to come down and bow before it. Now, if you noticed anything in my reading uh, of the text today, you'll notice that there's repetition in our text. Um, you know, and you know, we definitely know that all the satraps, the governors, the, the provincial leaders, the magistrates, they were all summoned. That's one thing that gets repeated quite often in this. But maybe the thing that gets repeated most in the text is that this was a statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Go back and read it. It's every time it talks about the statue, it's the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Nebuchadnezzar had set up, you know, down, down in verse 2. We get the whole list of the characters who are going to be there. They came to the dedication, the image which the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then down in verse 3, the, king, the image that king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And this is the thing, king Nebuchadnezzar. So we have this idea that, that Nebuchadnezzar is, you know, he is responsible for this. But it is like the epitome of Nebuchadnezzar's idolatrous pride that is on display here, and everyone is required to come and to bow before it. Now, probably I should do it, but uh, again, I think I'll leave it to Sunday school for us to reflect on where, where we feel most confronted by this in our own culture. Um, I'll be anxious to hear your thoughts. Where do you think are the obvious idolatrous um, instances that, that we confront as those living in the American Babylon. And by the way, I'm not picking on America here, because if I was in Germany, I'd be talking about the Germanic, or, uh, Germanic Babylon, and if I was in China, I'd talk about the Chinese Babylon. I mean, it's like the, whole, the point of Babylon for us is an age in which we live. We live in a Babylonian age. All nations are under this age, anything outside of Christ. And though America certainly has been influenced by Christ, nonetheless, the culture itself uh, is Babylonianish. Where, where is that? Where are the obvious statues? Where are the subtle statues that have been set up by man that really demand our allegiance, that demand our loyalty, that demand our obedience, that demand our honor? It doesn't mean honoring authority is bad. We know that, uh, we know that Daniel honored authority. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Honor the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. They knew they were called to be there, and we are called to live here in America, and therefore we are called to honor authority within this land. But where, the question we have to ask is, where does the authority, where does the cultural influence of our age cross over to demand more of us than we ought to give? Jesus said to his disciples, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and certain things are Caesar's. There is a certain honor that is Caesar's, and we ought to give it. Right? There's honor that we ought to give to our president, whether we voted for him or not. There's an honor we're to give to senators and to judges, whether we wanted them or not. Because you know, a lot of the people in Jesus' day did not like Caesar. But nonetheless, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And there's certain honor. He is, he is the agent that the Lord and his providence has placed there, and there's an honor due to Caesar. But there are things that are not Caesar's, and that cannot be given to Caesar. And one thing is our worship. One thing is our heart. I can honor you. I can pay taxes. I can obey your laws so long as they don't contradict the laws of my Lord. I can give you that. Even if I, that's not the way I would have wanted it. Nonetheless, you've been placed in power. I can honor that. But there's a line that gets crossed where you start to demand of me things that are God's alone. And here, again, in a I say cartoonish, and I, I don't know how else to say it. Kind of like in a big, larger-than-life story, we see it so obviously. Like, literally, you have to bow before this image and worship it. This great image of Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian kingdom. That idolatry is so obvious. May God give us eyes to see the idolatry of our age. And let's spend some time discussing it later. I'd love to hear what you think are some of those places where we are most vulnerable uh, to it. Well, so the first thing we get is this amazing, crazy image that is called End the Call by Nebuchadnezzar in this moment to bring all the people from the provinces to come before this uh, image and to bow and in so doing honor Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom, which brings us, of course, to the, the climactic event here of the text, and that is the refusal of these three faithful servants. We don't know where Daniel is during this, uh, the text gives us no indication, that, and, and nor would there be any reason to suppose that Daniel's not mentioned because he actually did it. It's just that Daniel is in the king's service, and he may not have been even summoned to this thing. So we don't know. This story is about his three friends, by the way, who got their promotion because of Daniel's faithfulness. And whenever the I can just see everybody bowing when the uh, music plays in all its different forms, when the music plays, you just see everybody in the land and all the provinces bow, and there's three guys standing. Like I see it in my head. It's just this amazing image of everybody poof, down. And then you look around, there's three obvious guys just standing there, arms folded. you know. And then some guys who are bucking for a promotion decide to come to Nebuchadnezzar and say, hey, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar, there's these three guys who refuse. You know, they figure they're going to earn some brownie points here by, by drawing attention to the fact that there's these three guys who won't bow. And so the three guys are brought to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar does not just throw them in the fiery furnace. He actually talks with them. He says, guys, maybe there's some misunderstanding. I'll tell you what, we'll play the music again. You know, give you another shot at this. Uh, all you got to do is bow here and we can move on. I mean, at, at the end of the day, it looks bad for the king to, to be defied in this way. Just Bow and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get on with things. And then he says, but if you don't, then I got to, you know, and then you can feel like the fiery furnace is right over here crackling away. 
Uh, if you don't, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And then he makes the, the amazing statement. And what God could deliver you from my hand? You know, um, what God could deliver you from my hand? And you get this image now in these three men that is so humbling and awe-inspiring, at least for me, I'm sure for you as well, of courage and defiance. Oh, you want to know what God can deliver us from your hands? Our God can do it. And he will, they say. And he will. And then they add this line. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow. Nor, frankly, do we even need to have this debate with you. We don't have to explain ourselves to you. It's like King Nebuchadnezzar, you have overstepped your bounds. You are asking something of us you do not have the authority to demand of us. You've overstepped your bounds. You can order all kinds of things, and by the hand of God, in the will of God, we have to do it. You can order us to do this duty. You can order us to pay our taxes. You can order us to do all kinds of things. But now you've overstepped your bounds, and as such, you don't even have the authority to ask this of us. And therefore, we don't even have to do this thing for you. There's just this utter defiance. But that defiance comes from an absolute confidence in the fact that God will deliver us. There is a God who can deliver, and He's our God, and He will do it. And even if He doesn't, it doesn't matter. We won't do this for you. Now, what is this even if He doesn't business? Is this a measure of doubt? Did, is there a little bit of, well, we're not sure He will. Maybe you felt that before. We pray and we think, yeah, but I don't think He will. There's that little bit of doubt that enters into us. Is that what's going on with these guys? And I think the answer is no. They have zero doubts, and you hear it in the defiance of their voice. There are zero doubts about their God's provision for them and the fact that their God will be with them. What they're not sure about is what God will choose to do, but what they know is that God is able to do it. There is, there is zero doubt when it comes to that. They just don't know whether God will be glorified in letting them die as martyrs or whether, in fact, He will deliver them. But the one thing they are absolutely certain about is that their God can and will deliver them. It's, it's almost like, uh, it's like Abraham when he comes to Mount Moriah and he's going to ascend to bring Isaac up and he goes up to do it. And, and we then learn in the book of Hebrews that as Abraham went up, he said to himself, the Lord, remember, cause he says to, uh, he says to the group, the boy and I are going to go up and sacrifice and then we will come back. Well, what do you mean you're going to come back? The Lord just said, go up and sacrifice your child. And, and what we find out when we get to the book of Hebrews is, Abraham's going, I, I really have no idea how this is going to go. But what I do know is that the boy and I are coming back because even if, because this is the child of promise, and even if God does, I go through with the sacrifice, God has the ability to raise him from the dead. And so if God calls me to do this, then God has the ability to raise him from the dead. And one way or the other, I know this child's coming back down that hill with me. I just have no idea how. And so there's like, you don't call that doubt. It's just un uncertainty as to what will happen. But there was no doubt in Abraham. And here with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there is no doubt in the provision of God. He will deliver them. I don't know if he's going to let us die in the fiery furnace or not. But one thing I do know is that our God will deliver us. Just supreme and utter confidence in the face of such calamity.
I remember, I've used this illustration before, it's been a long time maybe with you, but I've used it in different times even with my students. I remember going, and maybe you've had this experience as well, you go through something scary, um, and you escape, you know? I've had like those accidents that are like, you, you, you have to sit down because your knees are wobbly because you think, oh my gosh, you know, I had a chainsaw once slip. I was running a chainsaw and brush and it slipped and came and bumped right into, just as it was running out, hit my inner thigh. I was out in the woods alone and I tripped on some brush and the chainsaw came down and caught my leg. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, like that thing just goes a little hits me a little faster and a little deeper, cut right through my pants and just nicked my leg. And I thought, oh my gosh, like I, I, I don't even think I could have made it back home if it would have hit my, my artery, you know, it was right there in my leg. And, and so your, your legs are wobbly. You know, I stumbled back to the, the golf cart or tractor I had out there and I just sat down and caught my breath and, and was shaking and, and uh, prayed and thanked God for his mercy. And you go through little, I'm sure you've all been like that. You know, you stop the car short and boom, the car goes right by and you're like, oh my gosh, I, I could have gotten hit. And, and so you say things, I, I caught myself saying things like, God is so good, you know? which is absolutely true. That's a good thing to say, by the way. I recommend you say, you say that. <laughs> so that's not a bad thing. But I remember reflecting on the fact, like what if the bad thing would have happened? Would he still be good? Like it's, it's, it, it, it comes naturally to us to say, oh God, you're so good because you helped me escape this calamity. But what about when calamity does come? Is he not good then? Like is my, is my declaration of his goodness only because he got me out of this jam? Praise God he got me out of this jam. That is a reflection of his goodness. I don't minimize that. It just made me realize, but is my appreciation of his goodness only connected to the good thing happening. What if the bad thing would have happened? Would I still say he is good? And what I'm humbled by with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're going in going, don't know. Don't know how this thing ends. All I know is God is good. And we're not bending our knee because we know our God can and will deliver us in his way, and he is good, and they have utter confidence in that. And there's a model for us here, no doubt, in our Babylonian living. Sometimes it calls for wisdom, sometimes it calls for providential interpretation, and sometimes it calls for utter defiance. We will not. And Peter warns his readers in 1 Peter 4, our word of exhortation today, to be prepared for that. Brothers, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. You will suffer with Christ in whatever way, and therefore you ought to be prepared. And therefore, again, we have something very valuable. It's, it's worth seeing such a blatant illustration of this in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to stir us. May God make us Shadrachs, Meshachs, and Abednegoes. But of course, and this is where, of course, we can slip up in our reading of these stories, they're not the heroes of our story. They're really important figures, and they are heroic. There's no doubt about that. I mean, for us, we should, we should look up to them and, and be like, Lord, may I be more like them, no doubt. But they ultimately are not the hero of the story. The hero of the story is the surprising figure that, that pops into the fiery furnace. The hero of the story is the God who allows them to say, we will not bow. 
who is so good that they can put all their confidence and trust in him. And Nebuchadnezzar is infuriated by this. He tells the guys, turn the fire up to the seventh degree, right? In, 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 in the Hebrew mind, that is just like as hot as you can get it, right? Seven. You know, pump it up to the highest it will go. So hot that the ones who obey Nebuchadnezzar die in the process of putting these guys in there. They fall dead because of the unbearable heat. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go in there in the fire furnace, and they fall in, we're told, clothes and all. And then Nebuchadnezzar looks, and he sees he can see into this fire, and they're walking around, and lo and behold, there's a fourth figure in there. And he asks his guys, guys, did, didn't we throw three? And of course, they're like, yes, sir, three, sir. You know, we, we did exactly as, as we're told. Then why do I see four? And one is like a son of the gods, he says, though it comes across as son of God. And of course, here we're introduced to the hero of our story, and by the way, to the only one who enables us to live in exile in the midst of Babylon. One like a son of God who is there with us in the fire. You know, I was, again, I was talking to my students uh, in church history class. We're launching out into church history, and, and so we were starting, we just went back to the Great Commission. Jesus has now risen from the dead, and he's about to ascend, and he sends his disciples out, and he's going to send them all into the fire. They're going to go die for this. Like Peter's going to be crucified and John's going to be exiled and Paul's going to be, even though Paul's not there at that moment, but we know Paul's going to be beheaded under Nero. And, and, and so begins a long line of saints, suffering saints. And Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven. I am the king of kings. Okay? You're going to meet a lot of Nebuchadnezzars. You're going to meet a lot of Neros. You're going to meet a lot of Stalins. You're going to meet a lot of Hitlers. You're going to meet a lot of these characters, but remember, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I've commanded you. And then he says this, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. When you find yourself in the fiery furnace, I'm there with you. I'm not just sending you out and saying, all right, boys, go take the hill. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We chose Revelation 1 as our New Testament reading today because John is on the island of Patmos. He's about to get a vision of great suffering for the church, the book of Revelation. And it begins with John talking about himself as a co-laborer in the tribulation, a partner in the tribulation, right? To churches that are about to suffer, John is suffering already. And then John gets this amazing image, a towering image, in fact, much like the statue uh, in, in Daniel, a towering image. He hears a voice and he turns around to see the voice, he says, and there was just towering, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And the image that strikes me for the sake of our text today, he's got eyes of fire, he's got hair of, of white wool like the Ancient of Days, he's got a sash of gold around him like a priest, he's got a, a sword coming out of his mouth. But the image that strikes me for us is that he has feet of burnished bronze. Feet, we're told, that have been tested in the fire. And John, who now finds himself, if you will, in the fiery furnace at Patmos, writes to a church that is going to find itself in the fiery furnace of Rome, and through them to a church, to saints, who find themselves in the fiery furnace throughout the ages. 
and rated the outset of the vision is the one with all authority in heaven and earth, a sword coming out of his mouth, one who holds the very keys of death in his hands, having died and been raised from the dead, and lo, his feet are of burnished bronze. He has feet that are tested by the fire. He is one acquainted with the fire. He is one who is with his saints in the midst of the fire. The heroes of our story, as awesome as they are, the hero of our story is not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The hero of our story in Daniel chapter 3 is one like a son of God in the midst of the fire who preserves them so that when they come out, they are unsinged by the fire. That's the hero of our story. The hero of our story is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to sing here to conclude our service, How Firm a Foundation. And, and you will sing with new hearts and new ears and new voices that line, that line in the hymn, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames will not hurt you. The flames will not hurt you. I only design thy dross to consume thy gold to refine. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find. They're in the fire, but the flames can't hurt them. And the reality is, neither can your suffering. Regardless of what it is, whether the Lord delivers you from the chainsaw or not from the chainsaw, whether the Lord delivers you from this thing or not, everything will not hurt you. You know, it's, it's like the Psalm 91. You know, we talked about the plague. The plague will not come near your tent, even if you die from the plague. The plague will, nothing can hurt. No evil will befall you. Because even that, the Lord will bring into your service to consume your dross and to refine your gold. This is the good news of the gospel, that we serve the King of Kings. And therefore, therefore, brothers and sisters, it's not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that will empower us unto greater obedience. It is the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ that in fact, whether in or out of the fiery furnace, it can't hurt you. He is with you. And he has given you the victory, and he will give you the victory. That is the empowering hope, not only for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but for us as well. And so may it encourage you and strengthen you, and may it renew your commitment to him. May in the little trials you so put your hope in the one who is with you in the midst of them, the one who has gone before you and carved a way back out of them, that when should the time come for you to stand in the midst of the great trial, your confidence in him comes as quickly and easily as it did to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. May that be true for us as individuals and true for us as a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the heroic faith, if you will, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But most of all, we give you thanks for the heroic victory of our Lord Jesus Christ who does not abandon us to the flames, but who is with us in the midst of them, who does not stand outside the flames and summon us back forth, but who is there with us in the midst of them, for he has gone before us. He himself has entered into the flames. He himself has carved a way out for us, having borne the full weight of those flames. And so, Father, fill us with confidence. Equip us in the little trials, in the little challenges and temptations of this life, against the little idolatries that, Lord, should the time come where you call us to stand in the great moment, we will have been prepared and equipped to do so, even as you prepared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Lord, we thank you for the risen, 
ascended Lord Jesus Christ, who holds in his hands the very keys of Hades and death. Keep our eyes on him, we pray, and our confidence fully in him. For we ask this in his name. Amen.